0: My name's Christine Rawlinson, and I have a story to tell. On AFL grand final day, almost four years ago, my husband Neil became seriously ill, and everything changed for our family. With Neil's permission and blessing, I will fill you in on everything that he has been through. This podcast will shine a light on carers, the unpaid family and friends who support others to thrive, often at their own expense. My life changed dramatically when Neil became ill, Overnight, I was no longer a professional, I was a pensioner. And I was no longer a wife, I was a carer. My story could be your story. Becoming a carer can happen to anyone, at any time. Given this is the first podcast I've ever made, I asked lots of friends, new and old, to help me out with this project. Enter Sarah James. For my fellow Aussies, you may know Sarah from ABC News Breakfast, where she has a fortnightly segment, An American in Oz. Now others may know her from her many years on NBC News in the US, where she covered assignments such as September 11, Australia's Stolen Generations and too many more to mention. And as she's the mother of a child with a rare and devastating genetic epilepsy, which is called KCNQ2, Sarah understands the complexity of my world in a way that few can. Luckily for me, Sarah and I live in the same beautiful part of Australia, Victoria's Macedon Ranges. Who else can say that they have an Emmy Award winning broadcast journalist and author helping them out with their debut podcast? Now over to Sarah. So, Christine, grand final day. Are you a big football fan? I. Don't even know what any of the terms on the oval are. (laughs) And yet you like grand final day. I love grand final day, but I love a party. So that's probably more what it's about. Um, Yeah, I just love that getting together with friends and having a few drinks and yummy food and celebrating or commiserating together.
1: Yeah, because it actually doesn't matter who wins or who loses. So the party's just kind of the point. Is that it?
0: Yeah, and it's never my family's team because we barrack for Melbourne and Melbourne's never in the grand final. So it's always very random about who who's going to win and who I care about. So, yes.
1: So let's take you to 2017 AFL Grand Final. Historic game, a red-letter game. But for you,
0: that would be a day. Oh, Grand Final day is horrible each year now because... Um, yes, it just brings back probably a lot of regrets about if I'd have only done something sooner, if I hadn't, if I had realised things were a lot more serious than what they were. And I wasn't sitting on that couch next to Jackie's dad having a party while my husband was getting increasingly more sick.
1: And yet you could have had no idea, could you?
0: I thought he just had a bit of gastro. That's what happens when you go camping. Everybody gets, you know, we there were five families camping, you know, probably about 12 children between us. There was a kid who'd been up vomiting the night before. So, you know, there's always somebody who's got a bug. So the fact that Neil had to go to bed at halftime because he wasn't feeling well, although it was strange for Neil because he absolutely loves the grand final and loves footy. He'll watch football matches that are 20 years old just because he's a nush, but um yeah, he missed out on that game and he was unwell but we just put it down to gastro. Let's set the scene though. Where were you? So you're interested in the grand final, you're watching the grand final, but you're not home in your living room. Where were you? So we were in a a small caravan park on the Murray River in Echuca, um on the Victorian New South Wales border. Uh it's a place that we'd been going to as a group of friends um for the last few years. So, you know, a combination of tents and caravans, and we had our fold out camper trailer. And there were just, um, we were all camped around this cul de sac area with um, tennis courts right next door and a cold swimming pool that nobody used because it was just a little bit too chilly for that. But just kids racing around on their bikes and their scooters, and parents just sitting around in a communal area, just having wine and beer and cheese and talking and catching up. Very typical Aussie school holiday get-together.
1: Neil's a bit of a – he's a bit of a big kid, isn't he?
0: He was, you know, king of the kids. He was playing tennis. He was running table tennis tournaments. He was in the indoor heated pool throwing kids around, doing what Neil does. Probably the last one to go to bed at night, you know, he'd be sitting around – Uh, being the last one telling funny stories and jokes and, you know, making sure everybody's got a drink and cooking the barbecue. I would probably be in bed ridiculously early, but he would be out having an absolute ball, be up first thing in the morning, making sure that the barbie's cooked for everybody as well. He's definitely loves it. Your friends Kathy and Steve were there. Tell me about that. Kathy and Steve had noticed that Neil was, you know, pretty normal everything was okay they were actually playing tennis with him and then they said on the Saturday before um, we started getting lunch organized because the grand final starts in the afternoon that they were playing tennis with him again and he probably wasn't as energetic as normal and Neil said oh I just felt like I had a hangover maybe I'd hit, hit it a bit hard on Friday night maybe I um Maybe I am getting a bit older and I can't keep up with everyone else. And, yeah, he thought maybe he'd partied a bit hard. But he, he hadn't said anything to me. This, this is what he's told me later. Yeah, he was... I remember him being a bit tired. He was said he wasn't quite... didn't have his full energy that day. But he was still out there playing with us. And, um, and yeah, um, then, as I say, we all sort of got together for lunch and get sausages in the barbecue, all that kind of stuff. And, um, yeah, look, you know, he, um, I don't remember really many physical sick signs. I don't remember really coughing or sneezing
1: or anything. Yeah. I don't remember any of that. But I remember him just saying he wasn't feeling great. And he, you know, I think he looked a little bit grey, a little bit, gray, a little bit not, not great, but, you know, it's all kind of mm.
0: part of it, really.
1: This is your husband. I know you pay close attention to his every whim, need, desire. Like as we all do, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I mean, like, was he just typical Neil? Was that just sort of how it was? He was fine.
0: Yeah, he was fine, and I I was just passing him things and saying, "Do this. <laughs> this is very typical for me. Cook this. Do this. Do that," and he was happy to. And as
1: far as you were concerned, everything was fine.
0: Everything was fine. I just um I just went to the loo, and came back, and a friend of mine, and I'm pretty sure it was Jackie. Came up to me and said, "Oh, Chris Neal looks terrible." What did she say? How did she describe how he looked terrible? She just said, "Chris looks, uh, Chris Neal looks terrible." And um, so I went over to him, and he did. In what way? How did he look terrible? His skin—it's—it's it's really hard to describe, but his skin was almost grey. Um, I don't know. if with tinges of purple makes sense but his skin color had definitely changed and he you know when you get the shivers if you've got a bit of a fever his was more of his his arms were shaking like you know if a duck's quacking or (laughs) that sort of movement and um and he just said it's really uncontrollable and I don't feel right, but you know, I'll be fine. I'll I'll just, I'll just have a couple of Panadol. I'll be fine.
1: That's a pretty odd symptom, though. Did you think anything of it at the time, or not really?
0: I did because Neil's not the sort of person who gets sick. He, you know, he's usually he's usually fine. He never whinges about feeling unwell, and he he just said, "Look, I'm probably just coming down with something. I'll just take a couple of Panadol." I was a bit worried about his colour, and I. And there were a couple of nurses there too. So, um, And what did the nurses have to
1: say? Were they worried or he'll be right, mate?
0: He'll be right because, you know, we're camping. Someone always gets sick when we're camping. This many people together, sharing food, sitting around, spending time together, sleeping in tents and camper trailers and caravans together, of course somebody's going to, to be not quite right.
1: And he drew the short straw. It
0: appeared so. So
1: after that, so meantime, it is grand final day. Uh, Is Neil a bit of a grand final day guy?
0: That would be the biggest understatement I've ever heard. Neil (laughs) lives for AFL. He lives for grand final day. I don't actually know if he's ever been to the MCG to see a grand final, but it is a date in his calendar that he looks forward to. Neil will always try to either host an event about grand final, for Grand Final Day, or Neil will go somewhere where there's a major event to celebrate Grand Final Day. He loves it. So to be sick
1: on Grand Final Day, when it's one of the high holy days of your calendar, <laughs> it's not going to put you out of action, I suppose. No,
0: he was determined that he was going to be fine, and that he was, and that you know Neil was saying, "I'll be fine. I'll just take a couple of Panadol." And, you know, let's enjoy the game. Did it work? No. He Well, he tried. He tried for the first half. I was sitting, uh, we were in this big, uh, oh, I don't know how to describe it, like a recreation room, and they'd put up at the caravan park a big screen TV And there would have been about 40 of us watching it. And so there were kids sprawled out on the floor. I was sitting on a couch near the front. I I got a good spot. Neil was right up the back on a chair. And I just remember looking at Neil and he had, (laughs) it was terrible. And he's going to sound so terrible when I say this, but he had a cigarette in one hand and a beer in the other. And both arms were shaking violently. And... I went up to him at one stage and I said, Neil, you're looking pathetic. (laughs) You really look like a loser at this stage. You're trying to be part of the party, but clearly you're not well. Go to bed. And did he? He did. He gave in at halftime. He said, oh, I think I really need to rest. So he missed out on the second half of what Richmond supporters will say is an amazing match. Tigers
1: is for Neil with his love of this game this particular game every year for him to go to bed that must have set off the tiniest of alarm bells
0: for you it did it did because Neil yeah he wouldn't miss out on the grand final for anything did you suggest hey you know what maybe we go home I did after a terrible night that night he was quite unwell and uh Neither of us got a lot of sleep because he was – Neil was up and down most of the night with gastro symptoms. So in the morning I said, Neil, this is not looking good. I think we, we're we best to go home because it, it, Echuca is a two-and-a-half-hour drive from our home. So that was Sunday morning and Neil said, I really – I do want to be close to home because, you know – It's no fun to be sick on a holiday, is it? No. No, and I think he just wanted to be home, being, be in his own bed, have the comforts of home and um, hopefully recuperate. So you've, you get home on Sunday.
1: Is he improving? Did Neil improve on Sunday at all as far as you could see?
0: I didn't see a lot of him because he did spend a lot of time in bed, but I do remember him getting up regularly and going to the freezer and getting those um, uh, hydrolite – I suppose, and sucking on those. And he was still shaking while he was doing it. So Neil was trying to rehydrate. He obviously felt that he that would help him to feel better uh, with the gastro. Um, so he he did rest. But later that day, he was still just not looking right. And I said to him, look, I've got to go to the doctors about something tomorrow morning. Why don't you come with me and you can see the GP and... Um, just get checked out and maybe see if they can give you something to make you feel a bit better.
1: And how did you respond to the idea of going to the doctor?
0: Reluctant. He was reluctant to go to the GP. Uh, if I can make a sweeping generalisation about Aussie males and going to the doctor, but he went. He did go because he he said that he just felt miserable. He hadn't slept properly, and he just wanted to feel better.
1: When you left, backing up half a second, when you left the campground to come back to. Your home in the Macedon Ranges. How did how were the kids
0: handling everything at that stage? Sam was actually really worried about Neil. He said, "You know, I'm worried. Dad, Dad looks really unwell." One of the things that freaks us out when we think about it now is that. So Sam was 11 at the time. He's our son, and we had two cars because Neil had dr- driven uh, up to a Otago in his car after work on Thursday. So Sam went home with Neil in his car and I rang a couple of times because he wasn't really well enough to drive, but he just wanted to get home and we had the two cars. And I rang a couple of times and Sam just said to me, mum, I'm really worried about dad. And I said to Neil, should you be driving? He said, I'm fine. We're nearly there. I'll be fine. I feel fine for driving. Don't worry. And your daughter was with you? Eloise stayed with me. She was completely annoyed because she's a party girl. She was there. Out of our friends, um, just say there are 12 or 15 kids, the majority of them are girls. So they were all running around, swimming, having a great time, playing on one of those jumping pillows. So she was really annoyed that her dad had ruined her holiday and that she had to come home early but uh, she got to play with her friends a bit more while friends helped me pack up our campsite and then she drove home with me. Which just
1: goes to show that obviously there were quite a few people, including your own daughter, who, yeah, dad's sick, but he's not that sick.
0: No, he just had gastro.
1: Now, all right, so now it's, it's Monday. You, you say, look, you've been sick, enough already, time to go to the
0: doctor. How did that go? Yeah, so I had to, I had to see the doctor about, a silly foot problem and they sent Neil into the treatment room so that he was away from people because he'd been vomiting and there was a bit of a delay with what I had to do and I was just sitting in the room alone so I went to check on Neil and he was really agitated and he said I want to go I want to go now um, I just want a sleeping tablet from Umair who's our GP I just want Umair to give me a sleeping tablet because I just want to go home and get some sleep.
2: So when he came in to see me, what he said to me was that he's been feeling really tired for the last two or three days. He couldn't sleep properly. He also thought he had a bit of an upset tummy. Could he have gastro? Uh, and he was quite irritable, very unlike him. You know, I've known him for a while, and he's quite very pleasant. Um, and the one thing he said to me is, "Look, uh, uh, you know, why ask me so many questions?" You know?
0: So after I finished with. With my appointment, we drove around to the local chemist. He wasn't well enough to drive. I drove. So he waited in the car while I went in and got the sleeping tablet for him that Umair had prescribed. And when I sat down in the car, Neil said, check this out. And he lifted up the uh, leg of his pants and there was a purple rash on his calf. Had you ever seen
1: anything like that?
0: I... I'm embarrassed to say I did not know what the significance of that was. But he said, I said, did you show that to Umair, who's the, the GP? And Neil said, well, I only just saw it now while I was waiting in the car. So I didn't show Umair. And he said, but I can tell you what it's from. Because I've been so restless the last couple of nights. I've been rolling around. I've probably been scratching the leg and come up in a rush. So that would be it.
1: Did you want to go back inside and have Neil show Umair the leg again?
0: Honestly, I didn't even think about it.
1: So home you go. You've got the sleeping tablet and one more night of sleep and he'll be right.
0: Yes, Yep. Yeah. So I, he took the tablet. I had to go down the street for something. I was gone for 20 minutes. I came back. He was sitting up at the breakfast bar doing the Sudoku, but his right hand had gone completely purple and he was panting. At this stage, what did you think? I said to him, Neil, I'm calling the ambulance. And he refused. He said, you're not calling the ambulance. It's fine. Now, a bit of history to that is two years prior, Neil had had some epileptic seizures. And so he'd had a few ambulance trips and he really hated it and hated all the fuss and hated hospital. And He just had a, Neil had a huge aversion to having to, to get that sort of special treatment.
1: But you were confident that he needed to see somebody (laughs) medical.
0: Well, he was panting and his hand was dark purple and he'd already taken a sleeping tablet and he was trying to do the Sudoku. It was just a bizarre picture. So uh, I rang the the GP and they, you know, they knew us quite well. They'd been our family doctor for a while. And I explained the symptoms to the receptionist. She put me straight through to the nurse. I explained the symptoms to the nurse and she said, you don't want to call an ambulance? And I said, Neil won't let me. She said, bring him down now. How quickly did you get to the doctor's office? Oh, it's a 10-minute drive.
1: And you got to the doctor's office? Did he go straight in?
0: Oh, we got him to the doctor's office. Then he couldn't get out of the car. He couldn't actually stand up. So the receptionist helped me to get him out of the car. And so the two of us were more or less dragging him in on our shoulders. And the GP clinic was completely empty. So I was thinking, oh, this is good. We'll, we'll get to go straight in. Um, I found out since that they'd evacuated the property. And you had no no idea that. No, was the case. I just thought we were really lucky that it was empty, so we'd get <laughs> in straight away. This is curious.
1: This is always a really busy doctor's yeah. surgery. Wow, yeah, wonder just where a everyone is. Monday. Yeah. Little did you know.
0: Yes. So we went in, and suddenly everything started happening. It was like a scene out of ER. In what way? Um, there were three nurses. Umair, our GP was not his usual easygoing, friendly self. They were attaching him to IVs and machines. They said they'd called the ambulance. And that's when I said to Umair, I've got no idea what's going on here. Is there something I should be worried about? And, um, and that's when he said, I think he's got meningococcal disease and it's serious.
2: The thing is, so when he was lying on the treatment room bed uh, and he had this rash... When I looked at that rash, I thought, hang on, this looks like uh, septicemia, right? So that's when it all tweaked a little bit. Uh, so, so knowing what was going on, that's when we, I don't know if you remember, I got all the nurses to take all the clothes off, etc. So we could have a look at what was happening. Uh, and, and while we were doing this, I'm not sure whether you were aware, we were organizing to do some resuscitation stuff. Getting all our resuscitation gear ready. Uh, because in situations like this people tend to get very sick very quickly. Uh, the other big thing that we got done was actually to uh, talk to him slowly to get uh, two IV cannulas into his uh, ha- you know, arms on both sides. I reckon that's probably what saved his life at the end of the day.
3: I wasn't actually rostered to work in treatment room that day and um, I was working upstairs in the chronic disease clinic And um, there was two kind of junior nurses um, down in treatment room um, and I had a phone call from one of them um, requesting my assistance. And she sounded so calm and collected that I thought, oh, everything would be okay. And that, um, but once I walked down into the treatment room, I kind of got a gauge on this is quite a serious, maybe even critical situation. And um, Neil really didn't look well at all and I remember too being there and um a meningococcal type rash doesn't blanch so when you press on it it doesn't go um it doesn't go white and I remember immediately he did that and it didn't blanch so um that was our kind of immediate assumption that he probably had meningococcal and um that the fastest way to treat that is with antibiotics so that was kind of our go-to and I think that's the the scary part of meningococcal it you don't really know that's what it is until it's kind of at that point where it may be, may be too late, so it's quite serious at that point. Um, and, and often people never want to presume the worst, so you don't automatically think, think that. The, the confusing part of meningococcal is it often presents like gastro or like the flu, and um, it's hard to distinguish between flu and gastro and meningococcal, which is needing kind of immediate attention and care, so um, that's the scary part of it all,
1: I guess. Had you ever heard of this? I mean, that's a big, long medical word. Meningococcal disease. Not something well, like, that you hear every day. It's not like diabetes or asthma or yeah. epilepsy or anything else. Had you ever, had you ever heard of meningococcal
0: disease? I'd heard of it, but I didn't know what it was. I know that, the, you know, there's the meninges around the brain and that meningitis is when there's an infection around the fluid, around the brain. And when I worked as a speech pathologist with kids with a disability, some of the, the kids that I had seen who had speech and language delay or a, and or a disability, some of those kids were kids who'd had meningitis early in their life. But I didn't know what meningitis meningococcal disease in the early stages looked like. I didn't know that the rash was the first symptom.
1: Needless to say, you could still tell, though, that it was a big deal. I mean, obviously, if they're behaving like it's ER. Mm. We should point out as well, this is not exactly a flash city hospital. Lights and sirens, all the sexy doctors in their gear. I mean, that's not really where your local doctor's surgery
0: is, is it? No. So I live in Riddles Creek, which is a small town, population probably about four or five thousand. Gisborne is the the big town down the road. And I don't know the population of Gisborne, but it's 10 maybe. And it's just a little GP practice. Um, Everybody knows who everybody is. You know, the reception staff know who you are when you walk in. There's no real anonymity there or anything.
1: And suddenly it's acting like a big city hospital with everything happening.
0: Yeah, and I suppose when I said to Umair, check out this rash on his leg, is this important? <laughs> and I'm embarrassed that I'm saying that now because that's, yeah, oh, that is important. Um, and Umair said, what about the other leg? And I said, I oh, didn't even think to look at that. So it, the same rash was on his other leg. And then they lifted up his shirt and it was all over his abdomen. What was Umair's face like? Oh, he was, he was barking orders at everybody. Do this, do that, do this, do that. So, um, it wasn't long and the ambulance came in the door, like literally a couple of moments.
1: And suddenly Neil's on his way to the big hospital.
0: Yes. Yes. So, um, they'd. What they had told me they needed to do was get some major doses of antibiotics into him just to keep him going. And what they were afraid of was that they couldn't get a blood pressure reading. So they filled him with IV fluids um, and that helped to to start getting his blood pressure up a bit. So they were doing lots of talking around me, lots of code that i didn't understand, even though I've got a, you know, a a fairly decent health training background. Um, But Umair said to me, where are the kids? Because he knows, he knew that I had an eight-year-old and an 11-year-old and I said, home alone. And Umair said, you better go and organise someone to look after the kids because you and Neil are going into hospital.
4: Hey everyone, just a quick break to let you know that the Care Factor podcast is sponsored by the Kyneton branch of Zonta. Zonta is a leading global organization of professionals empowering women worldwide through service and advocacy. Envisioning a world in which women's rights are recognized as human rights, where every woman is able to achieve her full potential. In such a world, women have access to all resources and are represented in decision-making positions on an equal basis with men. And in such a world, no woman lives in fear of violence. Head to zonsa.org.au, that's Z-O-N-T-A, for more information. Now, back to Chris and Sarah.
1: How was Neil
0: during all of this? Was he conscious? He was conscious, but he was a bit irrational and really confused. And Neil was trying to brush off how serious it was. He, it was as if he thought people were making a fuss for no reason.
1: And for you, I mean, when you talk about it now, it's been a long time and you, can, you have a sense of lightness in a way which I suspect is to keep
0: it at bay. But at the moment, what were your thoughts? I was probably more numb and in shock than anything. But when, um- when Umair said you need to organise something for the kids, that was – I went into the hallway and it was when I rang my mum and my mum wanted me to explain what happened, that was when I started sobbing because I actually – I didn't really understand what had happened. I didn't really understand what was going to happen. All I knew was that this was probably the most acute emergency I'd been involved in and I'd already heard the AMBOs and Umair having a conversation and Umair had said to the AMBOs, oh, I hope you're going to get him to Sunshine Hospital because that'll be quickest and the AMBOs said, no, we need to get him to Royal Melbourne Hospital because that'll be better for him.
2: Uh, the other thing also, I'm, I'm not sure how much you realised at that point, we were pretty much getting ready for him to go into you know, cardiac arrest because he no. looked shocking. So we were getting all our resuscitation gear to resu- resuscitate him when he collapsed, uh, essentially. Uh, but thankfully he didn't. Mm. Uh, so... Um, The other thing that we managed to get was some fluids into him as well. Uh, We uh, got on the phone to the hospital, got the hospital involved and told them what was coming. Um, And at this point, the ambulance guys rocked up fairly quickly.
1: So you could tell that it was incredibly serious. But did anybody really explain to you what
0: meningococcal disease was or were they so busy? No, they were completely focused on Neil. Um, You know... All of this machinery that I didn't even know they had at the GP clinic came out. They had him attached to all sorts of wires and tubes and um, they seemed like they were trying to calm him down and trying to keep me calm, which they did an amazing job because I was I was calm.
1: And then you're in the ambulance. Describe that drive for me. I well, mean, as far as you're concerned, let I me mean, let's just back up half a second. You think your husband has gastro. The next thing you know, you're at your local doctor's surgery. Then you're in an ambulance and you're on your way to the Royal Melbourne.
0: Yeah. And maybe I wasn't too stressed because we we had done the ambulance trips a couple of years before with the epilepsy and he just had monitoring and was sent home with medication. Maybe I, I, I don't know. Or maybe I was just protecting myself because it was clear things were serious. But we got in the ambulance and we turned the corner, within one minute of driving we stopped again at the front of the ambulance station and I, I looked at the driver and he said, I just have to get some masks. And I said, what, why, do, why would we need masks? And the AMBO said, because if it's meningococcal disease, it's highly contagious and we have to protect you and us from catching this disease.
1: And this is pre-pandemic when nobody just has their mask handy.
0: No, so it was quite bizarre.
1: As you went to the, as you're in this ambulance heading to the city, are we talking about a sedate drive to Melbourne, a calm, cruzy? let's just keep everything stable, they'll deal with it in the city?
0: No, we're talking 140 kilometers an hour, lights and sirens. Um, The Am- ambulance officer driving was talking non-stop to the guy in the back. Um, I've since heard that Neil had crashed a couple of times, so they were afraid that he was he was dying in the back. Uh, he was on his um, CB radio talking to people non-stop. He got out his mobile phone at one stage and had a conversation with people. I didn't understand what the conversations were. He was very... He was very calm, he was very matter of fact, he gave numbers and at the same time he chatted to me and jollied me along and was able to have a conversation about how annoying it is when people drive at 80 kilometres an hour in the right hand lane on the Calder freeway when he's trying to get someone into hospital. Sounds
1: like they were pretty amazing.
0: They are sensational men and I have since spoken to them and I'm full of admiration. That was one of
2: the things that I was that was on my mind when we were driving down to hospital, too, was the fact that, you know, yes, we suspect this is meningococcal. It's contagious. You know, We've upped our infection control. And I was thinking that you, know, you guys have been camping
5: in the same tent. You've got small kids. You know, they were out ups- of the camping trip as well, as I understand it. I just remember thinking... Uh, wow this was this was real and um when um uh, you know it's your first major job as a student okay so you i guess i guess that makes it more special uh, a couple of things first of all um i've never been exposed to anyone with managed couple before not confirmed okay a few yeah. suspected cases but never confirmed this was the first confirmed case and the second of all when we're driving on the freeway and He's sort of okay. We know that he's sick, don't get me wrong, he was sick from the word go. And then he becomes really sick to the point where we almost, almost lost the blood pressure. And you've got no support coming at that time. There was just no mica available for us at that particular time. And so we were told to just drive fast and that would be the best thing for Neil. And um, if something changed and he deteriorated further, we would have pulled over. And, but from, from the word go, that case wasn't your classical sort of a sepsis or meningococcal case. When I, uh, when we came to the clinic and saw Neil, um, the cannula was already in his arm and one gram of ketriaxon, which is a broad spe- spectrum antibiotic, was already given by a GP. And I remember GP saying, what do you think? Should we give him a second gram? And I just remember from... You know, it's not in our protocol. Okay. Our protocol says one gram of Kefdriaxon. Okay. Broad spectrum just to cover until we actually get you to the hospital. I remember from being an emergency nurse that very sick, septic patient without, before you actually diagnose them with exactly what causes the sepsis, you give him two grams diluted in 100 mils. And GP said, what do you think about a second gram? And I said to him, I can't do it under my guidelines, but if you want to do it, You should do it. There's nothing to lose. Neil's already, you know, in a world of hurt. And
2: it's the difference, yeah, it may be the difference between life and death and maintaining some body parts.
1: You get to the hospital. What happened when you got to the hospital?
0: Again, I was so impressed with how friendly and welcoming people were because as people were ramped in the hallway... Neil and I were greeted. Everybody knew our names. They said, oh, you must be Neil, you must be Chris. And we got escorted into a fabulous corner room. And I thought, this is amazing. We're getting such good treatment, such good service in the public health system. Did
1: it worry you that you were getting this VIP treatment, though? I mean,
0: I just thought it was our public health service doing a magnificent job. I was so impressed with their efficiency and... This is I think I was totally deluding myself and it's not it's not until later that I re- realized that that corner room's called the resus room because that's where people who need resuscitation who are dying go
1: the penny didn't drop
0: no the penny I was in such denial
1: do you have some sympathy for that looking back I mean this did happen pretty quickly this is a pretty quick, quick ramp up ramp up you know going from grand final day to you're in the Royal Melbourne Hospital in the reset, resource room.
0: Yeah, well, I was just going with it, I suppose. I let, I let the professionals do what they needed to do and they were so calm. They were so professional. They kept me informed and I suppose I saw my role during that time was to try and get as, as much information as I could so that I could pass that information on to Neil's family and my family. Was Neil
1: conscious during this time?
0: He was conscious, but he was trying to get out of the bed. He was trying to rip all the IV tubes out and he kept complaining that his feet were cold. So, um, you know, the, the blankets, those waffle cotton blankets that you have at hospital, I know at one stage he had three of those that had been heated on his feet but he still kept complaining about how cold they were and then at, at some stage I looked at his feet and they were already dark purple. That must have scared you. Yes. So both hands were purple by this stage and there was a blotchy rash running up both arms. Both feet had turned purple and the blotchy rash was running up his legs and the blotchy rash was all over his abdomen. Did anyone explain to you what this was, why it was happening? What did they say? A, a doctor called Kim Yo came in pretty early on uh, after our arrival at the resus room and she asked me just to give a bit of a rundown about what had happened over the last couple of days So I, you know, I put on my my health professional hat and I gave a case history and I gave a rundown of the symptoms. And then at the end of that, she said, "Uh, are you a health professional? And I said, yeah, I'm actually, well, I was a speech pathologist. I'm now doing policy and community engagement work in the disability sector. And she said, hey, we have something in common. I was a physio and now now I'm a registrar. So that was good. And then I said, What's going on? And she said, well, he's got this infection that's taken over his body and he's going into toxic shock syndrome. Toxic shock syndrome. I mean,
1: that, when you heard that diagnosis,
0: what did you think? Well, I said, but that's what you get from tampons, isn't it? And they said, yes, it is. But it's, it's when an infection attacks every organ in your body and your body is just not able to fight it because it has, it just doesn't have much of a chance. So your body is just shutting down because the infection's gone rampant all through your blood system, all through your organs. His skin, you could tell, was already terribly infected. Yeah, it was horrible.
6: The GP decided that to give you two grams of Keftriaxone antibiotic, which probably saved his life actually, um, but it meant that it was difficult for us to get a bug because he was already treated with the antibiotics and then sent him straight to the emergency department. Um, but looking back, that probably, we, we just we talked that that probably saved his life. Um, and if he it was any delay in that by a couple of hours, potentially he may have died en route. So when I saw Neil, I was extremely worried. I remember taking photos of Neil so that I could show my consultant, Alan, Dr. Alan Street, the photos of Neil because um, Dr. Street was in clinic and I really, really wanted to impress on Dr. Street how unwell Neil was so that I could get Dr. Street down as soon as possible without delay, even though he was in the middle of clinic. I remember that when I showed Dr. Street the photos, he said, "Oh, he's in big trouble. The mottling, um, the rash, everything, he's in big trouble. And... I remember um, Dr Street saying to you very clearly um, there's a possibility that he may not make it tonight, make it through the night. Um, And I think um, for me at that moment, I put myself in your shoes, trying to keep it together, trying to listen to the information that we were telling you, trying to take it all in, um, how terrifying. That must've been. Um, And I really felt for you. I really felt for you. And um, and then when we left the bedside, I don't think you probably didn't know this, but Alan Street said, I don't think he's going to make it through the night.
1: When she explained all of this, suddenly you must've been recognizing how dire this was.
0: Yeah. I was, I was starting to get to the oh, shit, stage, and uh, she said she went and got um, the infectious diseases consultant who then asked to speak with me in a room and they told me there were two likely outcomes and that first of all they were trying to organise a bed for him in ICU and that he was either that there was a very good chance he was going to die that night because the infection had taken over his whole body um, and he was in multiple organ failure. And they said, if he does make it through the night, we don't know what's going to happen next. But if he has any chance of fighting this infection, he's probably going to need to go into an induced coma because he's fighting it. At the moment and not allowing his body to heal. So we need to have him in the coma. But you're probably going to have at least a month, possibly several months of Neil being very unwell. At that stage, did you say, why? How did this happen? (laughs) Yes, I did. And they said, we don't know. The next thing they said was, you've got children, haven't you? And I said, yes. And they said, you need to... So this was the consultant and Kim, the registrar. They said, you need to get your children to come in and say see their dad tonight because we really think there's a very good chance he'll die.
1: In other words, they were saying, you need your children to come in to say goodbye.
0: That's what they said. Yep. So can then prepare I prepare you for that, can it? I mean, <laughs>
1: nothing can prepare you for yep.
0: that kind of a conversation. No. No. And I remember seeing Neil's brother Glenn walking into the hospital, and I more or less collapsed when he came in hugging him. I collapsed onto him and I just said, They've said he's going to die and I don't understand and I have no idea what's going on you're going to have to talk to them because this just doesn't seem real
7: there I was sitting in class uh, teaching Chinese medicine and uh one of the prerequisites for the students is that they're not allowed to have their phones on and um and my phone went off and they all looked at me and I said "Oh, I better turn that off and I looked and saw Chris's name on there and I thought well that's strange Not strange that you would call me, but it was strange that the timing and I thought, well, I went over and I just felt that I'd better answer this. And Chris answered it and her voice was very panicked and she very quickly told me what was going on and that she was doing 150 Ks an hour on the, uh, was 150 Ks, is that the agreed figure? Something like that. Doing 150 Ks an hour uh, 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 on the the call to freeway and that Neil was um, going to be in intensive care and I think the words were may not make it through the night Uh, was mentioned. That was just like bang, just bang. And I was sitting in front of people all looking at me going, everything okay? And I said, "Um, I think I'll just duck out of the room for a minute. So I went outside and and finished the conversation with Chris and uh, tried to decide what the next step was. Well, I couldn't do anything. So I sat there pretending to be all completely okay with it all. um, And uh, just with a whole plethora of thoughts going through my head about that whole scenario uh, what had taken place trying to work out whether or not i understood what was going on with neil and um just you know come to the terms of the fact that uh, i might have not, I've seen him for the last time
0: did the kids get to see neil they got to see neil i i after i'd had the chat with the consultant and the registrar who said to bring the kids in I, s- I went and had a chat with Neil and said, oh, the kids are on their way in and Neil protested. He said, this is ridiculous because it was about oh ten o'clock at night by now. He said, it's too late and I don't want to stuff your mum around and there's no need. And I said to Neil, well, this is the conversation I've just had with the doctors and they're saying these two things are what's going to happen. And... um. He said, okay, let them come in.
8: So Aloise and I are sitting at home and I'm trying to keep her calm. Like I'm playing games with her, just trying to keep her calm. So grandma comes and is like, okay, so your dad's in the hospital. We don't know what's happening. Uh, You guys are gonna come to my house until uh, your mum wants to see you. So we drove there. Aloise and I were starting to get very worried. And once we got to Grandma's house, we waited for about half an hour. It was just hitting ten. And then Grandma finally got a call from you saying the kids need to come in. So Grandma took us in. We saw you and Samantha sitting on chairs just outside the room, and you were crying, which is completely fair. And after I saw this, you stood up and took us in, and his legs were black. And his legs and fingers were black. And he, he sounded like, I'm trying to put this nicely, he sounded like he was drunk. And he, you could tell that something was really wrong with him.
4: I like, like breathing was
0: harder. And um, I just like looked at him and got scared and like, what's gonna happen? Is he going to go away? I haven't known him for that long. Is he going to leave? And that's all that I could think for that time. My cousin was there and she kept hugging me because she knew I was literally about to cry. I did cry. <laughs> she could not stop me. Um, And I just kept thinking of all the bad things that were about to happen. Sam was, he couldn't function. He was just like looking at him, just staring at him. And I remember that. He just and um I went up to him and he said and he said, It's okay, I'll make it out of this, don't worry. As so
1: the children went in, they got to see Neil.
0: It it was really that was tough watching the kids with him because I knew that this could be their last time with Neil and Eloise is a real sweetheart extrovert and she just held his hand with her rubber gloves on and um and she just kept saying oh daddy poor daddy daddy poor daddy and Sam he stood back and he was silent and he was just staring at every single piece of equipment and just taking in the picture so and Sam's quite an anxious person and I think he was just trying to process what this meant what they were doing and what the possibilities were. And then they got sent home.
1: What did you say to them when they left?
0: I just said to them, this is the best place for Dad. Dad said that he's going to do his best to get better and these people know exactly what they're doing and they will look after him.
1: Did you feel confident in your own heart?
0: No. I was expecting him to die that night. He was so unwell.
4: That's all for this episode of Care Factor. If you liked the episode and want to share your support for those who worked on the project, there are a couple ways you can do so. You can always leave a like and review on Apple Podcasts, but you can also support financially for as little as a cup of coffee. Just head to buymeacoffee.com. From there, search the Care Factor podcast where you can donate as much as you see fit. It would be greatly appreciated by the entire Care Factor team. If you'd like to get in touch, check out our Facebook page or send an email to carefactorpodcast at gmail.com. Care Factor was created and written by Christine Rawlinson, and episodes were recorded in conversation with Sarah James. Produced and edited by Brody Hoyne, and recorded using the expertise and advice of Jaden Lee with music written by Kylie Lane and artwork by Miffy Howe. Care Factor was produced in Victoria, Australia. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of which we met and pay our respects to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community members past, present and emerging.